two men went up to the temple to pray. The first man was a good man, honest, successful, with just the sweetest wife, two bright kids who were strictly rationed on time spent in front of screens, and a dog who was walked every morning and evening. He's the kind of guy you want at a church. Pledge time came, and he was never late with his 10%. He observed the fasts and feasts. He volunteered his time. The second man was a bad man. He was a crooked accountant, keeping the books and taking some off the top, and everyone knew it. His children were poor students and unpopular in school. The dog had fleas and tried to attack other dogs. They ate packaged food from the microwave in front of the television every single night. They're at church one day. The good man looks around him and makes a prayer to God which Jesus overhears. Thank you, God, that I'm not like these others. He had read the paper that morning like he did every morning, and it was fresh on his mind. All the thieves, the lazy, all the adulterers, and there's that tax collector in the same church. There but for the grace of God go I. Thank you, God, for my good life. The bad man looks down, hollowly, hopelessly, and beats his chest and prays, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is the man, Jesus says, who went home justified. Now, in my religious background, the word justified is a familiar and important one, but nearly all of you in here are some degree of former Catholic, so uh, let's clarify. Justification is a primary concern of the Reformation, where our church here came from. When you hear this word, it means something like being tried in a court of law and, not, and found not guilty. The Reformers loved this story, and maybe you do too. Jesus clearly says it's not an ecclesiastical structure of prescribed penance mediated by a priest that saves a man. No confession box, no indulgences. The man who is justified only asks for forgiveness in a tone of humility, and that's enough. The reformers also like this because they want to say there's not a substantial difference in the need that these two men have for grace. Even a fairly faithful person is on the same level as the blatant sinner. The measure of our righteousness on the scale relative to God's blinding righteousness means we're all about equal to both Mother Teresa and Hitler, all of us. The reformers can really sink into their teeth into the subject of depravity. And honestly, I can too, when I consider the waywardness of my own heart that does not yield to my varied and elaborate disciplines and still does what I wish it not to do. 
Well, I extrapolate that data of personal experience to the whole world and find myself at home with Calvin and Luther, beating my breast over the state of my soul and all humanities. The bad man was justified. But this is where I'm perhaps not so much team reformation. I want to know, did it matter? Like, did this thing that happened have some tangible results in the bad man's life? Did the bad man's kids know he went home justified? Did he make amends? Did he quit his job? Did the justification last? Y'all were Catholics, mostly, but in evangelical Protestant land, I went to an endless number of churches where bad men cried and repented and got saved and went home and continued to abuse the people around them. But this moment of turning to God and asking for mercy was the one where you were supposed to go back and say, I was a bad man, And that day I beat my breast and made a decision to be a good man. But it never really seems to work out that way. There was a famous evangelist who said that the best thing that could happen after being saved like that is for the person to walk out and be hit by a truck and die right there, saved and purified. Before the fire could die out in the torrential downpour of a world running on greed and satiation of self and destructive patterns of behavior natural to the person in them. Protestant, Catholic, I don't know. Prescribed patterns of penance mediated by an ecclesiastical structure up against the totalitarian authority of the individual who becomes his own judge and says, after a lifetime of beating up women, that he's been saved and changed and so should be electable. I don't know which is better. When I get into these little puzzles with parables, I know I've probably lost my way and should call for help. Um, James Allison was the man who led me back out this week in an essay Uh, Not about this parable, but in an essay about goodness and shame. Shame operates in both characters in our story, I think. Very obviously for us in the life of the bad man. But the good man works as he does to avoid shame. To make a picture-perfect life, he has to look around at others and make sure he's doing just a little bit better than everyone else to avoid that feeling that comes with very visibly not having it all together. The good man does live a good life, but all the shame he's avoiding, he gathers together and places on an easy target. It's nefarious how it happens with us good people. Often you see this way of living turn into something like martyrdom. Everyone will someday let him down. James Allison writes, The word Christian has become sullied. 
It's no longer the adjective it should be, describing you know, a series of attitudes and ways of being reminiscent of Christ. He says, now it's a noun which carries with it a fake claim to righteousness, a pretext for freedom from social and legal responsibility, a justification for harsh positions unsubmitted to reason. I suggest that the word sinner be brought back into circulation instead, he writes. Rather than the self-lacerating term of yesteryear, it can now happily mean finding myself undergoing being forgiven, so no longer hiding my shame, but rather allowing that shame transfigured to be the common ground through which I am able to be in the company of others, shame held tenderly by grace. If I could make a mission statement for a church, it would be that, shame held tenderly by grace. I mean, clearly marketing is not my thing. But a place where fears and anxieties and faults stop being used to make false images of righteousness that keep others out. A place where we can admit the shame to a God who has felt it, who went there willingly to meet us, smashing up the edifices and idols as he went, to make the place of shame a place where we begin to know what we are, which is beloved.